Uh, well, good morning, everybody. It's uh, good to be here. It feels a little bit more normal. Now I'm actually preaching from the pulpit in front of the church, uh, even though it's an empty church and it feels kind of funny. Um, well, we're continuing on in the book of Job today, and I'm looking forward to uh, getting, getting into it, to sharing God's word with you this morning. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Father God, uh, we thank you for the book of Job. It's a tricky book, not easy to understand, but I pray that you would be with us this morning, that you would help us understand what you want to say to us, that you would speak to our hearts, encourage us and challenge us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> now, I'm not a counsellor. I claim no expertise in the area. But I thought I'd start off today with a few words of what not to say to someone who's in pain or grieving. Here are some real-life examples of things that people have said to someone grieving that I promise you will not be helpful. This is something said to someone who's lost a child. If my child died, I would be happy because I know he is in heaven. This was said to someone who'd lost a disabled child. Now you can live your own life rather than Kate taking care of a disabled child. Or this was said to someone who'd lost their mother. Well, you know your father will marry again, don't you? Sometimes as Christians we try to offer spiritual comfort that's really not helpful. Things like, well, everything happens for a reason. Or how about this one? God needed him more than you do. But I think the two biggest clangers I've found that really take the cake as the worst things to say are these. Someone who'd lost their 20-year-old daughter in a traffic accident had someone say she knew how this mother felt because their dog had died the week before. And then finally, how about this one? Losing your husband is nothing compared with the death of a parent because you can always replace your husband. They're shockers, aren't they? Well, but I don't want to be too harsh. Most of these people were probably actually well-meaning. They were wanting to say words of comfort, but somehow just dumb things came out of their mouths that reflect what often happens when we don't know what to say. Job's three friends were probably also well-meaning. They genuinely wanted to comfort their friend, but what came out of their mouths was not helpful at all to Job. In fact, it was like punching a man when he's down. Already undone by losing everything, Job is attacked rather than comforted by his friends. Job feels like he's copying it on two fronts. He's being kicked in the teeth by his friends while at the same time being crushed by God. Today we're going to focus on the words of Job's friends. Not because that's the most important part of these speeches um, or, or that they're, they're wise words. No, what they, what they say is largely rubbish. But it's important to understand what they say so that we can understand the book of Job as a whole. And so we can understand how Job responds. And at the end of the book, 
how God responds as well. So today I've got three points. The first one is to look at the friends and what they believed. What they believed. In the second point, we're going to highlight three fatal flaws in their theology. And then my third point is to try to work out, so what? What what are we actually to do with these puzzling chapters? And what do they have to say to us today? Well, let's get into it. Our first point is is, uh, the friends. The friends came to, to comfort Job in his suffering. For seven days, we found out in chapter chapter 2, that they sit watching him and don't say a word. Then Job curses the day of his birth in chapter 3, as we heard last week. And so now the friends finally open their mouths and respond to Job. First cab off the rank is Eliphaz, then Bildad, and finally Zophar. In between each one, Job speaks. For three rounds of speeches, they do the same thing. Today, we're looking at round one. Let's see what they have to say. Firstly, Eliphaz. Eliphaz is the most polite of the friends. He's also the least direct. It's actually a bit hard to work out what he is saying. On the one hand, he seems to say that he is confident in Job's righteousness. Um, uh, please have, have the book of Job open with you because we're going to be uh, working through the text, uh, not word by word, but we're going to be landing in different spots uh, in these speeches. And the first one we're going to look at is chapter 4, Eliphaz's speech. Chapter 4, verse 3, Eliphaz says, Think how you have instructed many, how you have strengthened feeble hands. Should not your, your, your words have supported those who have stumbled, you have strengthened faltering knees. Should not your piety, and then verse 6, should not your piety be your confidence and your blameless ways your hope? So Eliphaz seems to be saying, seems to be admitting that Job is right. He is righteous. But then he seems to hint that perhaps Job might have sinned. Uh, Go down to verse 8. As I have observed, those who plough evil and those who sow trouble reap it. After all, Job is now suffering. So perhaps Eliphaz is concluding that he has ploughed evil and now he's reaping what he's sown. He goes on to offer Job some advice. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 8. If I were you, I would appeal to God. I would lay my cause down before him. And the result will be in uh, chapter 5, verse 19, according to Eliphaz, from six calamities he will rescue you, in seven no harm will touch you, in famine he will deliver you from death and in battle from the stroke of the sword. He doesn't say it outright, but Eliphaz seems to be saying, Job, if you repent, God will restore your fortunes. But what is clear from what we saw in chapter 4 verse 8 is that he believes that if someone sins, they are punished. You do evil, you get evil. It's a common teaching in the Old Testament that we often call retribution theology. Retribution theology. And as we'll see, not only Eliphaz, but all three of the friends had an unshakable belief that it applied to all people in all situations. So, that's Eliphaz. Next in line is Bildad. 
Bildad lacks the social niceties of Eliphaz. Uh, over in chapter 8, he gets straight to the point in verse 3. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. And then verse 5, But if you seek God earnestly and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your prosperous state. Job is saying, your children got what they deserved. But if you get on your knees and ask for forgiveness, you will be restored to your prosperity. The subtext here is that you are getting what your sins deserve too. Once again, retribution theology. The basic doctrine of it is fine. It's actually right through the Old Testament. God blesses the righteous and punishes evil. We see it in the book of Deuteronomy, for instance. If God's people obey God's laws, they'll enjoy prosperity and be able to live long in the land. On the other hand, if they disobey, they'll be punished and sent into exile, which is ultimately what happens, isn't it? But what the friends did was take that general principle, that general truth, and presume that it applied to Job's life. They looked at Job, saw he was suffering, and made the assumption that he must have sinned. So, so much for Bildad. Lastly, Zophar, Zophar gets up and speaks. Once again, he has already found Job guilty. What's more, he claims to have inside knowledge about what God is thinking. Flip over with me to chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 6. Know this, God has even forgotten some of your sins. He claims to know the mind of God, saying, look, Job, you're not even getting what your sins deserve. God is actually going easy on you. Then comes the predictable message. Turn to God, repent of your sin, and life will be sweet again. Have a look at verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 16. You will surely forget your trouble, recalling it only as water's gone by. Life will be brighter than noonday and darkness will become like morning. Simple. All very neat. Like a formula. You do good, you do the right thing, you get good back. You do bad, bad comes to you. It's a bit like a slot machine, isn't it? You put the right money in, you press the button and you know exactly what's going to come out. Well, when I put it like that, it makes the friends sound worse than they do if you, if you read through their words, uh, their speeches in their entirety, in context. You may be thinking, yeah, how stupid, how could anyone possibly believe that? But if you read their words carefully, a lot of what they say actually is good theology. It actually makes sense. Eliphaz speaks in wisdom language that really echoes the book of Proverbs. Go back to chapter 5, uh, 5 verse, verses 9 to 12. Uh, God performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. He provides rain for the earth. He sends water on the countryside. 
The lowly he sets on high, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. The friends all have an unshakable belief in God's justice. Uh, Bildad uh, in chapter 8. Flip over to chapter 8 with me. Chapter 8, verse 20. Surely God does not reject one who is blameless or strengthen the hand of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouts of joy. Your enemies will be clothed in shame and the tents of the wicked will be no more. These are words that wouldn't be out of place in, say, the book of Psalms. A strong, confident belief in God looking after the righteous and punishing the, the wicked. So the friends actually say a lot that is, that is good and true about God. But what makes them all the more dangerous is that they are close to the truth and so it is not so hard to get sucked in by what they say. My second point is that I think there are three fatal flaws, three fatal errors that the friends fall into that ultimately make their advice to Job bad. The first one is that they presume to know the mind of God. They presume to know the mind of God. We just saw the example of Zophar claiming to know that God had forgotten some of his sin, Job's sin. And the whole reason they condemn Job is that they claim to know that he is in the wrong and that God is punishing him. What they do is that they go beyond God's word, God's revealed word, and whenever we do that, we're on dangerous ground. They went beyond the truth that God punishes the wicked and blesses the righteous. Now that part, that's solid ground. That's clearly taught in the Bible. But they went beyond that to say that Job must be being punished by God because he's suffering. Back in the dark ages when, when I was a uni student, I went on a beach mission during my summer holidays to a place called Woolgooga uh, on, the, on the far north coast of New South Wales. We were assigned into teams uh, where we served different age groups of kids. Now, my team leader was a lovely bloke, um, um, but he said something that I'll never forget because it disturbed me at the time. Even as a young Christian... I didn't think it was right. It was a time when there was a severe famine in northeast Africa. I was really troubled by the reality of suffering on a scale that I couldn't imagine. I found it hard to square with my faith in a loving God. I mentioned this to my team leader and his response was this. He said, quite confidently, that those people were being punished for hundreds of years of disobedience. They were being punished for hundreds of years of disobedience. Now at that point, a hundred objections flashed through my mind. How does he know that? How does he know the mind of God? How can he know why this generation being punished for the sins of the fathers? What about the thousands of faithful Christians in places like southern Sudan, who didn't have enough to eat. My team leader presumed to know the mind of God and went beyond God's revealed word. 
And we could bring it forward to today, couldn't we? Um, I've heard Christians claiming to know that coronavirus is God's punishment for sin. How do they know that? Imagine hearing that if you have lost a loved one who has died from COVID. Second fatal flaw, they leave no room for God to be God. They believe that they've got God all worked out. They claim to know how to diagnose Job's suffering. God is just. He wouldn't punish God unjustly. Therefore, Job must be being punished for some sin that he's done. For them, knowing how God works is like knowing a formula, as we saw before. It's fully predictable. There's no room in their theology for mystery. There's no room for God being bigger than their understanding. Job at one point makes a disturbing claim. Have a look at uh, chapter 9, verse 17. Job believes that even if God did respond to, to Job wanting to appear before him face to face, Verse 17 says, Job says this, he says, He would crush me with a storm and multiply my wounds for no reason. The idea of Job's suffering for no reason is something that came up in chapter 2, you might remember as well, where God himself says he was incited by the Satan to afflict Job for no reason. It's a disturbing idea, isn't it? that God would act in an arbitrary way for no reason. And it's particularly threatening to the friends because they want a watertight theology. They want a God that they can fully predict and understand. They want a tame God who conforms to set rules that they can live by, that they can control. Now, I don't think Job completely gets things right at this point. We know at the end of the book that God does appear to him in a storm and that he doesn't crush him. But perhaps what's behind God's use and Job's use of that phrase for no reason isn't God acting in an unjust, arbitrary way, but maybe it's expressing the fact that God acts in ways where human beings can't see and can't know the reason. It looks to us like there's no reason, but that's because God is God and we are not. In other words, God is free to be God. He doesn't have to act the way that we think he should act. Third fatal flaw is that there is no place for grace in the friend's theology. There is no place for grace. Have a look back at something we saw earlier from Bildad in chapter 8, chapter 8, verse 6. If I can open my Bible page. Chapter 8, verse 6, Bildad says, If you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your prosperous state. Now, in one sense, this sounds fair, doesn't it? And it fits perfectly with a friend's take on retribution theology. 
the righteous get what they deserve. But in the big picture of God's story, that's not how it works, is it? Even in the Old Testament, which gives us retribution theology, God's people have never got what they deserve. Think about that. If God's people got what they deserved, they would have been in trouble and we would be in trouble, wouldn't we? It was only ever by God's grace that he chose a people for himself. It was only by grace that he brought them out of Egypt. It was only by grace that he brought them into the promised land. And then as we come to the New Testament, we see God's grace reach its climax. As it says in the book of Romans, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, the godly for the ungodly. You see, friends, the foundation for everything has always been God's grace. Thank God that he doesn't treat us how we deserve. Well, let's, let's bring it home. My third point is, so what? What do we do with all this? What's the use of all this ink being spilled on three examples of what not to say to a man in pain? And what are we supposed to take from it as we study it? Well, we could certainly spend time thinking about how to learn from their mistakes when it comes to being a bad example to those who are grieving. We could certainly do that. But I want to take us this morning on a, on a slightly different tack. Our focus today was on the words of the three friends, but I want to finish up with some words from Job that provide a contrast and a far better model for how we can navigate our way through suffering. In chapter 13, we read earlier that Job slams his friends for speaking wickedly on Job's behalf. We haven't got time to unpack that, but in a nutshell, Job is accusing them of being false witnesses for God, for claiming to know the mind of God, claiming to know what God thinks of Job. They force God into a box to fit their theology. But Job knows he's innocent and, and, and he wants his day in court. So have a look with me at chapter 13, verse 3. I desire to speak to the Almighty and to argue my case with God. But the problem for Job is that he believes that God will crush him, as we saw before if he appears before him. But still, despite that, he doesn't let go of that desire to meet with God. Have a look at verse 15, 13 verse 15. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. That's an extraordinary statement, isn't it? Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. You see, for Job, his whole foundation in a loving God who protects him and blesses him, that's all been snatched away. And yet still he holds on to hope 
in God. He still longs to meet with him, to be declared in the right with him, to have a relationship with him. And then Job goes on in the next verse, verse 16. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance, for no godless person would dare come before him. You see what Job's saying here? Job is declaring that he still holds on to a belief that God will act justly in the end. The godless will not stand before God, but he will be delivered because he is in the right. Job has just spent six chapters saying how God has been unjust to him. And yet at the end of the day, he holds on to that belief that he will do what is right and act justly in the end. Despite his world being torn apart, he holds on to a hope in God. Despite Job having a thousand tormenting questions and no answers, he holds on. Even if it is only by a thread, he holds on to God. The friends, on the other hand, claim to have all the answers and no questions. There was no room in their theology for troubling questions. They refused to allow the messiness and the reality of life to get in the way of their neat theology. Their watertight theology that couldn't let doubts sneak in. You see, if they actually listened to Job and considered for a second that he might be innocent, then their whole worldview would collapse. But instead, they preferred to live in a fairy tale world, a world of make believe where they refused to see the evidence. They refused to see any evidence of unjust suffering that just might challenge their view of God. The friends sound very upright. They say all the right things about God. It's Job. Job's the one who sounds irrational, outrageous, embarrassing. But I want to suggest, friends, that it's Job who provides a model for, for us for how to deal with suffering. It can actually be tempting to be like the friends. I know as we look at them today, we might think, why would anyone want to be like that? But actually to have a belief system that has all the answers and doesn't allow questions, doesn't allow anything to threaten it, that can be tempting sometimes, especially in times of uncertainty like now. Because it's secure. It's easy, it's comfortable, it's not threatening, it's neat. But it comes at a cost. It's a bit like walking on a lake that's iced over. Uh, when we were in Beijing in, in winter, we, we went walking one day on, on a lake that was the ice. As we got about 20 metres out onto the lake, we realised the light, ice was a bit too thin and it started to crack. So we beat a hasty retreat. When suffering comes, it's a bit like that with the friend's theology. It will collapse 
I first experienced that as a young Christian when my grandfather died. How could a good God allow him to suffer like he did? If you're young, maybe you haven't yet experienced those moments. But they will come. A parent wasting away with cancer. A divorce being unjustly treated at work. Or, or, or just watching the arbitrary, cruel, senseless suffering of the vulnerable and the innocent in the world around us. There will come a point where even the most watertight theology will find itself sinking under the weight of questions that threaten to shipwreck our faith. But Job, on the other hand, was forced to be real. Reality came and smacked him between the eyes. There was no avoiding it for Job. There was no hiding behind a fairy tale theology that denies the real world. Alone, robbed of everything and everyone he loved, ranting against God, and yet amazingly not giving up hope. Now, let me say at this point that I've really struggled to write this sermon. The book of Job is a difficult book and these speeches are especially difficult to know what to do with them. Even Job's example, which is obviously much better than the friends, the question is how do we apply this to us? How do, what do we learn from it? Well, here's one thing that I want to finish off with. Job was left completely empty by his suffering. He had nowhere else to turn but God. There was no covering up. There was no pretending that everything was hunky-dory. Just raw pain and a desperate cry to God. God wants us to come to that place with him. I, I don't mean that, that God wants to afflict us like he did to, to Job. But he will use hardship. He will use difficulty, even suffering in our lives. Because he wants us to come to the end of our own resources and come naked before him. He wants us to not find our hope in comfort or an easy life or in work, whatever it is. But like Job, he wants us to come to a place where we have nowhere else to turn but God. Even amidst a thousand questions and things that we can't make sense of, he wants us to be in a place where we are longing to meet with him face to face and find our hope in him. Amen.